Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. We're going to take a scripture reading from John 4, 1 to 26. And at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we shall respond. Thanks be unto God. Verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, The water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When it comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, 
I, the one speaking to you, I am E. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. All right. Thank you, Tyro, for that, uh, for the reading. So we are continuing in our um, series on the book of John, where we are trying to see Jesus, the person of Jesus, the most significant person, I think, secular and religious, that has ever lived. And we're saying as Christians, especially as we're a church, it's good to know who uh, the founder of our religion is. Especially as many times there is confusion about what he stood for. Many people want to talk about who Jesus is to them. And Jesus wants to say, who am I to you based on what I have said? Now, we, um, in our confession today, the confession of what we believed, we, um, we quoted the, uh, the, the creed, the um, Nicene Creed. And there have been other historic creeds that unite Christians all over the ages, right? They may seem a little bit stuffy, like the kind of thing that they do in churches where there's no life, but actually... They are the things that unite us with people that have gone before us. A historic theologian always used to say at the beginning of his class, he used to tell the people that, he said, my job is to let you know that people have been worshipping Jesus before your grandmother was alive. And in that sense, sometimes when we scoff at things that have been, uh, what you say, orthodox for the last couple of centuries, when we scoff at it, we are actually in some ways, stamping down on the faith, the genuine faith of people who have handed it over to us generation after generation. Now, the creeds are one of those things that show us the faithfulness of people all through the centuries. To say, well, people wrestled with certain beliefs that were clearly in the Bible, but there were heresies here and there. Now, one of those creeds is the creed of uh, Chalcedon. And it really affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've gone through the book of John, especially in the first chapter, one of the things we saw was that Jesus, the person, is divine. He is the word, the eternal word that had no beginning. And many times it's good to affirm this, but in other times we may move too much to one side and then forget that this person who is God was also a human being. And in this particular story that we just read, or if we look at the book of John, um, at least here in verse 6 to 8, we see that Jesus was tired. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was hungry. In the book of John, as in other Gospels, he uses these d- different kinds of particular encounters and occasions to talk about the human condition of Jesus, uh, the human condition, our human condition, and then a truth about Jesus Christ. So again, he uses particular encounters with people. John and the other Gospel writers use particular encounters Jesus has to talk about things that you and I share, certain things about the human condition, but also to reveal certain things about Jesus Christ. So, for instance, in this book, in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, a particular um, um, encounter, he goes on to teach that word, I am the bread of life. Or after he raised Lazarus from the dead, in John chapter 11, he went on to teach that, I am the resurrection and the life. And so here... Though we can talk about many different things from this passage, he uses the condition, the occasion of his hunger and thirst and this discussion with this woman 
to have a profound discussion on soul satisfaction. How can we be satisfied? How can we be fulfilled? Or how can we be filled to the full? Now, we know what that is, don't we? Um, when we're still uh, in the UK, one of the best times and the worst times that I used to have, especially over weekends, was when you had to probably go for a weekend away with the church. The church we attended was a little bit, you know, Anglo. Though you didn't have many black faces there. And um, so you go away or you go and visit someone and you go and spend the weekend. Now, the discussion was nice. We bonded, especially if there were Christians. We bonded over many different things. You know, everything was fantastic. Talked about books, talked about music, talked about everything. But there was always one problem for me. I'm sure you're already guessing what it is. It was the food, right? You, I mean, you can have a salad over in the one, one afternoon, and maybe pizza after. You can stretch that. But then the next morning is bread that doesn't have any bromate. It's not like a gigi bread. Like you can, you know, you can. And then you, the, in the afternoon, you have pizza again. And then a different kind of salad in the evening. And then when you get to the third day, so usually by the third day, I'm already like, I'm going crazy, you know. And you cannot just wait until you get home. And if my wife didn't go with the trip for me, I'm already calling her, please get some eba ready for me. Now, here's the point. It's not so much that when you eat the salad, you eat the salad, you eat as much and much, you eat the pizza, you get full, don't you? You get full. It's not like you don't get full. You can't really take anything else. But there is something, you say, I am full, but it didn't get there. You're about to say, Kodebe, you know? So by the time you take that eba and, you know, the foyer and, you know, the cow, the cow leg with the shaki, or you know what I'm talking about, right? You pull it, and then you have the drink of cold water. What, what's the next thing you say? You say, ah, oh. why? Because, Odebe, it got there. And that is what satisfaction is about. It's not just that I want to be full. It is, there is something that has to touch a sense of, my satiety point. And Jesus is going to use this encounter here to actually say so much about satisfaction. I think the most profound discussion on satisfaction you'll find anywhere. So we're going to look at it in four points. You didn't see that coming, did you, right? <laughs> I thought I'd surprise you guys. Four points. Now you're looking at how long is it going to use? Well, the good thing is that our choir people didn't sing for too long, so I have extra time. All right, so satisfaction, we're going to look at the illusion of it the perfection of it, the solution to it, and progression in it. I'll say it again. The illusion of it, the perfection of it, solution to it, and progression in it. Now, the illusion of physical satisfaction is, let's look at that now. Now, if you look at verse 11, you find out that this woman really does not get it, as most of us do. Do not. So in verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Now, this is in response to verse 10. Jesus meets this woman. Jesus is thirsty. The woman starts discussing somehow, and he's like, If you know who is here, I actually have this living water. And then the woman is thinking that. The world, she's thinking still about this physical world that is here, and she's wondering, 
well, I actually have the means to the water. You don't. So why are you saying, you are the one that wants water. Why are you then telling me now that you can give me water? The woman cannot see here that Jesus is talking about something different. She's still thinking on a very, very materialistic plane. In other words, the woman has a materialistic worldview. She's saying that at the end of the day, you have thirst, and the way this thirst is going to be quenched is actually if you drink physical water. And then any other kind of satisfaction that you need to have, if you have the desire, it can only be gotten in this world. And Jesus in verse 13 is showing that this, this uh, our need is deeper than the physical. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Now, do we not often find that when we finally achieve that dream, that thing we've been waiting for, that the feeling of satisfaction, supposedly, that we have, it just doesn't last. We're already thinking of the next thing we're going to do, or what, what next? So whether it is that you think, by the time I finally finish this degree, for those of us who may be undergrads here, or by the time I get my postgraduate degree, then I would actually have the requisite knowledge that's going to give me the best life, supposedly. Or actually... I will be done with the bondage of reading all the time until somebody says, well, there's something called CFA. Or there's something called ACCA. And actually, that one, at least you are going to school Monday to Friday. This one, you go to work Monday to Friday, and then you have to go to school Saturday and Sunday. Yet another bondage, isn't it? And you finally get the ACCA after five, six, seven, eight years, and you still find out that the ACCA doesn't satisfy. Because there's another training at work that you have to come for during Saturday. Now, the most philosophical book of the Bible, the Ecclesiastes, says this in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 to 11. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. So he, he sought everything in this world. He says, I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Have you ever chased the wind before? Notice you'll never be able to get it. It's like chasing after your own shadow. Nothing in this world, the writer is saying, under this world will eventually fully satisfy. He denied himself no pleasure. Pleasure, he tried pleasure, he tried work, eventually tried wisdom, and he found out there was nothing to gain under the sun. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. All those who drank from this well, after they drank from this well, guess what happened? They come back again. Why? Because they are thirsty. Now, what does this do to us, both as human beings or as Lagosians? It generally leads us in two directions. Now, one you can call naive optimism. We become naive optimists. And the other you can call disillusioned pessimism. So we become disillusioned pessimists. So let's take the first one, naive optimists. Now, if you look in verse 16 to 18, this woman's greatest need was to be loved and to be approved of. Now, you know, she lived in a time when women, just like in many very, very contemporary. Women were not valued. They were undervalued. In her own case, they were to be silent. In her own case, the only thing that matters is your fingernails, your lipstick, and your high heels. 
But in some sense, they were undervalued. And so she hadn't got the love that she would have craved for. And what did she do? Where did she look for that love? And verse 16 to 18 tells us. She thought that she could get that love or that approval with the love of men. In fact, she even thought she could get it in marriage. So she tried the first time and it didn't work. But she tried the second time. It didn't work. And the third time. And the fourth time. And the fifth time. Eventually, she figured out that marriage was not the way to go, but she didn't still think that men were not the way to go. And so at this point, she's living with a man that is not her husband. And we may look at her and judge her, but, you know, some of us, that is it. That is still the same case. We are being in a marriage here and we think we're not being sexually satisfied, and so we turn to pornography. Or we think that what we really need is money, so we keep chasing it and believe that once I make this million, no, once I make my, you know, the Naira has crashed, so it can't be a million again. Once I make my first 10 million, then I'll be satisfied until you need another, another 10 million. Because really, if you earn 10 million, you can't live in Ikoi, can you? And so it becomes from 10 to 100. You keep chasing after the wind. For some of us, it's status, power, and influence. You know, once I know this person, once this person, I have this person in my, my contact address book, you know, that's all that matters. Well, actually, you know the person, he has your contact, you have his contact number, he doesn't have your contact number. Or you, once I have this number of Twitter followers, oh my word, 5,000 Twitter followers, I mean, people that actually respect me, no, they follow you on Twitter, they don't really follow you. And then you think, I have to have a verified Twitter account. And some of you are looking at me, what is a verified Twitter account? <laughs> or until I get this degree. My, my misfortune in this life is I don't have a, a university degree. And we keep on going on, going on, going on, chasing after the wind. Now, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can readily satisfy. You see, the problem with naive optimists is that rather than wake up and smell the coffee, we keep on chasing after the wind, keeping our view that something in this world will satisfy us. We do not stop. And we keep on getting hurt. This woman was hurt in her first marriage, second marriage. We keep on getting hurt, disappointed. If we even get it, we keep looking for something else. What about the disillusioned pessimists? If these ones keep thinking we can get it here, these ones are their direct opposite. So where did this lead this woman? Now, look at verse 15. Sometimes if you read verse 15, you may misunderstand. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You may think she's asking, I would like to have this water. No, she's actually being very, very sarcastic. It's more like, give me this water so I won't have to keep coming here. How do we know? Because if, Jesus, if, if she actually felt, you know, she got the teaching then Jesus would probably say, okay, so now let me tell you how I am the Messiah and all that. Jesus said, go and call your husband. Doesn't seem like, right? Because she was, it, was, it was sarcastic. He'd been going on and on with this thing. This was meant to be a way of ending conversation. Women, you know how to end conversation with that guy that you're just not interested in, right? You don't say, will you call me? You say, yes, I will call you. Because you know if you say, 
I won't call you. What's going to happen? Why won't you call me now? Right? And the conversation keeps on ending. So, sir, just give me, all right, give me this water so that I won't keep coming. And just is looking at her. She's so sarcastic. In other words, she's been beaten down so much that somehow she started to become some kind of cynic. Jesus told us so many true things about himself. Verse 10 to 11, he said he is the gift of God. He said he has living water that he's going to give her. In verse 13 to 14, he, he said, if you come and drink from the water that I will give to you, I won't thirst again. Give me this water. And he says, ah, okay. Let's take this conversation further. Now, it's very possible most of us, maybe those who are more advanced in our years, are the ones that actually start to tend towards this. You see, we start to lose hope. We've tried. You've tried and you've tried. For decades, you've tried. And so you see some of these upstarts looking so zealous, thinking they're going to take over the world, and you scoff at them. You're the one who has tried in your marriage. 35 years of marrying, of marriage, you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it hasn't changed. He keeps on cheating with somebody else. And so when a younger person is coming up and saying how she loves her husband and he's such a wonderful person, you tell her, don't trust any man. Or you've tried in your businesses over and over and over again. The government disappointed you this time. This other time was the bank. This other time was the person that actually told you that they would give you and then, you know, they didn't fulfill the promise. And then what do you say to people? Uh, all this business, business, business thing. The only people that make it are those who are corrupt. In other words, we have no longer any kind of motivation in life again. We've become disillusioned. We've become so pessimistic, we've become cranks. No one likes to stay around you. You are the one that always spoils the conversation. It's like putting a bit of poison into water. You know, it just makes everything bitter. This is what a chasing after the wind can achieving us when we take the wrong worldview of how we can be satisfied. It is an illusion. Now, there's an alternative worldview that Jesus presents to us, and we see it in this second point, the perfection of satisfaction. Christianity offers a different view. Now, Jesus says, I have this water. Now, what he's saying is this. Rather than be a disillusioned pessimist or a naive optimist, he is calling us to be Christian realists. We should be real. Now, in doing that, he's saying certain things. I don't know if you've heard of this illustration. I, really, I, I recently heard about it. If someone is thirsty, if someone is very thirsty, right, we want to drink something. Now, what would happen if you give someone who is thirsty honey to drink or to lick? I mean, at the end of the day, you're thirsty, you need to drink something, right? So you say, hey, here's a, here's a cup full of honey. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? The person is going to get even more thirsty than they are. In other words, the fact that there is something there that needs to be satisfied doesn't mean that the solution that you give to that person actually makes it better. Because both of these other worldviews that I've given to you are somewhat correct, but at the same time, they are wrong. The naive optimist is correct to say that we have an itch that needs to be scratched. It's wrong to think that we can actually get it in this world. The disillusioned pessimist is right that you cannot get what you're looking for around here. He's wrong to say that you can actually never 
get it. Jesus says, I have the water to give to you. Because if you deny that there is this satisfaction, you are actually dehumanizing someone. Listen to C.S. Lewis again. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Oh, dear, dear. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. Jesus in verse 14 says, we have an eternal appetite. Notice the word is, that qualifies appetite, is that it is eternal. And when we keep seeking things that don't give us eternal satisfaction, what happens to that, that, uh, that hunger or that thirst? It continues to grow and grow and grow. Aquasia is again, and one other person. Just so finish this quote by saying, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Well, I like this one by Harry Nowen, a late Catholic theologian. He says, The intimate experience in which every bit of life is touched with a bit of death can point us to the limits of our existence. It can make us do so by it, it can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our heart will be filled with perfect joy, a joy no one shall take away from us. Do you hear what they're saying? That quite often I know I have this 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 thing that needs to be satisfied. I cannot get it, and he's saying that the fact that you cannot get it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But the fact that you cannot get it means that there is the answer. The answer is in another world. And so what is the answer? The answer is Jesus' own water. The Bible affirms to us that there is our tiredness, our, our, our sexual desires, our thirst, all of those things are pointing to a world in which they can be satisfied. You know when it is? It is in the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal dwelling of God's people where we'll be satisfied. See, Revelation 7, verse 16, it says, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. It quenches all of the negatives that we find in this world. Revelation 21, verse 6, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring, of the water of life. Now, in, on the one hand, we're talking about you are thirsty, you need to be satisfied. So that is the negative. He's quenching the negative. But what about the positive? How do I explain this? Well, when I first got married, I remember what happened. Before I got married, I had to shack up with two other guys. One of them was okay. The other one was very annoying. I shall not name the person that was annoying to protect the guilty, even if he may be sitting right in front of me here. But... I was about to get married, so we needed to get a place. I think we're getting, uh, Tosu was coming over in November, and I rent was expiring in September. So we got a place, two-bedroom house, and I was still waiting for her. Now, the house was a lot better than what I had before, but somehow there was a feeling of emptiness there. Why? Because she wasn't there. 
Or let me put it another way. Quite often if I travel, when I travel and, you know, you go speak to people, do whatever you want to do, when you come back, what are you coming back to? You're coming back, we say, well, I'm coming back home. You're looking forward to home. Now, I don't care how large your house is, even if it's eight bedrooms and it's fantastically palatial and all of those things. Your house remains a house if you don't have the people that you love there. What makes the house home is the fact that the people that you love, that you're going to share your joys with, are there. And so someone once said, if God was not in the new heavens and the new earth, that place will be hell. You see, what is most satisfying about the new heavens and new earth is not just the fact that there will be no sickness, there will be no death, that as our, our, we will finally be satisfied. The question is, how would you be satisfied? In his, in, his, in his presence there is fullness of joy, and on his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's with him. And so David in Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I will be vindicated when I see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. John, in the book of Revelation at the end, takes it further and says that in the city of God, the new city of God, the new Jerusalem, the Eden that has been remade, where all our satisfaction will be met, it's only done because they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Revelation 22 verse 4. Don't you long for that? Where all your desires are, on the one hand, you are satisfied with you supposedly with where your work is going, but if only my family can, my family life can be fulfilled. Or my family life is going well, but I just wish I didn't have to struggle for every single bill at the end of every month. Don't you long for a time when it will not be like that? And Jesus is saying, there is a time. Now the question is, how do we know that time will actually come to pass? What has God done to actually ensure that that time will come to pass? Third point. The solution to satisfaction. The simple answer, again, is Jesus. You're good Christian people, don't you know that? The simple answer is Jesus. Don't forget, it's not just that there's a water of life is that he has the water of life. Verse 10 and verse 13. Now, if it is Jesus, I want you to be very careful with trite answers. You know what I mean, trite answers? Simplistic answers. Because there's a way you can say, we know that the whole answer is Jesus, so can you just give us an explanation? You know, we know, we know. You know how they say, I know this person must be God-fearing, but you know, but you know there's a but at the end. And there should be a but, the right explanation of who Jesus is. But I say that because there are so many answers outside there, especially within Christianity. Some will tell you that it's the abundant life that is the most important thing. They are right in what they say. They are wrong in how often that is explained. What kind of Jesus? Because you see, this woman's disillusionment caused her to keep avoiding being confronted. This is what she was doing. So the first time she meets Jesus in verse 9, she's already saying, you're a Jew. And essentially saying, so can we have, you're a Jew, so we have nothing to do with each other. That's verse 9. 
In verse 15, when she's now sarcastic, it's more like, you are naive. So can we end this conversation? After he told her some things about herself, then in verse 16 to 18, she now says, ah, you are a prophet. So let's discuss some theology. Doing everything not to confront that which is inside of her. You see, the problem often is that we want to be satisfied, but what it means for us to be satisfied, what it takes is what we often run away from. You cannot come to Jesus and try to know Jesus without knowing certain things about yourself. And again and again, we come back to the theme of this book of John, which is that you would only have eternal life if you believe in Jesus Christ, but you would only believe in the true Jesus Christ if you know who he really is. John 20, 31, 30 to 31. So how would we know this Jesus? Well, it's not in part of the reading that we took, but in verse 34, when the disciples came back, they said, oh, do you have any other food? Because they brought food and he's saying that, don't worry, he's okay. And he said, well, he already has food that they know not of. What is Jesus' food? Well, he tells us in verse 34, my food is to do the will of who sent me and to finish his work. He had something to do. That's his food. Another kind of food. But he had to finish that work that was given to him by the one who sent him. Later on in the book, in this book, in verse 30 of chapter 19, he says something. He says, it is finished. It's finished. The work was finished. What work was finished? All that was required to complete the work of full redemption and its benefits, which includes satisfaction, by the way, was now accomplished. It is finished. Most of us know where that happened. Where did he say it is finished? Now, before you get there, you would actually see in verse 28, that's two verses before he said it is finished, what happened? Later, knowing that everything now had been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, listen to me very closely. Jesus said it is finished on the cross. But on the cross, he said, I am thirsty. You see, for our satisfaction to be accomplished, Jesus said this, or knew this, for us to be eternally satisfied, Jesus became eternally thirsty on the cross. I say it again. Jesus became eternally thirsty on the cross so that we will be eternally satisfied. This is the gospel. Because coming to Jesus and really seeing what his work is about for him to finish it says something about ourselves. Yes, we are victims of the fact that we can't be satisfied, but we are not just victims, we are also rebels. We are part of the contribution for why we cannot be satisfied. And Jesus is saying, come to me. I will give you that drink. But you have to come to me knowing who you are truly. The cross is saying, I have to take your punishment. I have to take your thirst before I can release the living water to you. Will you come? Perhaps you think that you've been a Christian all this while. And you think, well, I finally figured it out. But actually, all your life is about chasing after the wind. Well, there's someone who has become eternally, eternally thirsty 
so that he can give you eternal living water to satisfy you. Because look, only the gospel can deal with our soul satisfaction. You may know this woman up until verse 25 came and when uh, he says, I am that Messiah. She didn't really know who she was. But after she'd gone to tell people some verses later about who this Jesus was and they now actually spoke to him, in verse 42 they said something profound. They said, this John, I'm still reading John chapter 4. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is what? The savior of the world. Is he your savior? Or he's the one that improves your life? What we're saying is please build a solid career. Work on your marriage. Embrace the influence that you have. God wants us to do all of those things, but he also says this. You will only use them for good or not make a mess of them when you know that they cannot satisfy you. Only Jesus can. Put them in the right place. Now, you may be saying to me, well, I am a Christian for me, and I know about this, but can you help me? What can I do to actually... I know this is not the way I should live, but I need help in this way. Well, verse 4. Uh, verse 4. Fourth point, the progression in it. That's the progression in satisfaction. Well, there's only one way to go about this. And it's for us to become true worshippers. You see that there, after the whole theological argument, is it this temple or is it that temple? Theological arguments are good. Don't get me wrong. Because Jesus actually settles it there. He says, it's not you Samaritans. It's actually the Jews. But even, but with, with, in relation to time, even the Jews, if they keep worshipping in this temple, they will be wrong. Why? Because I am the temple. I am the real meeting place between God and man. So a time is coming and now is that if you don't worship God through me, it's not going to be true worship in spirit and in truth. So he settles the theological argument at that point, and then moves the theological argument further, but that theological argument always has to end up in Jesus. So how can you progress? You have to become a true worshipper. What does that mean? All the other things that you are going after will be false. If you look for, to worship any other thing and follow and look for it for soul satisfaction other than Jesus, it will be false. They will be false gods. So you can actually worship false gods or you can falsely worship the true God. The Samaritans were falsely worshipping the true God. At least they've heard of him, the God of their father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what, is it, what does it mean to be a true worshipper? Well, to worship God in spirit and truth. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 to 12. I am not saying this because I am in it, for I have learned to be content with whatever the circumstances are. He has learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That word, I have learned, I have learned... In other words, Paul is saying, for you to be a true worshipper, you have to also 
learn. It's not just given to you. How you're going to work or, uh, um, or work this out in your life is not just something that's just going to come at the snap of your fingers. It's not just something that's going to come because you've heard the message. It's something that you're going to actively learn. Spirit and truth. What is the truth? Very simple. The truth is the gospel. Because he connects himself to, Jesus, uh, to, to, the, to the true worship and saying, it is only by me. It is the gospel. I'm not saying the whole of scripture is not important. I'm saying the whole of scripture is pointing you towards the gospel. If you don't get the gospel right, if you don't see that you need the love of the Father before you can be liberated to actually love people or sometimes to be rejected by people. I can't propose to another person because they keep rejecting me. Well, that person is in bondage through rejection. The rejection has held him captive, so he cannot propose. But if he knows that he has the love of God in Jesus, the one that truly matters, he is free to, pro- to, be, uh, to propose to somebody else, and they say no to him. I'm not saying that's a good thing for them to say no to him. I'm saying you can be free to take that hit over and over again. The loss of that particular business is not going to paralyze you. You know why? Because in Christ Jesus, you are blessed with spiritual riches in heavenly places. So we are free to fail. And if we succeed, we are not paralyzed by the success. It doesn't get to our head. But if you are not meditating on this gospel, it will not get into you. You see, there's a part of the content coming to your head, but for it to come to your heart, it also requires the spirit. If the gospel is the truth, the spirit is the power. Those that worship him in spirit and truth. In in the book of John, later in chapter 7, Jesus says, come to me if you are thirsty. For out of the belly of those that believe shall flow rivers of living water. I have water to give you if you are thirsty. But he says, he was talking about the spirit. So the spirit is given to help us for our satisfaction that is not yet filled here, even though we are believers in the gospel. But the spirit works in tandem with the gospel. That is what Paul means by he learned how to be content. Contentment reflects an anticipated or a longing for perfect satisfaction. Are you looking for that water that Revelation 21 speaks about? says yes. If you do, if you are longing for it, then you will reflect contentment in this world. So, how do we do it? Well, Psalm 119, verse 103 tells us that God's word is sweet. Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. Change your diet. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. If you hunger and thirst for what is unrighteous, there is no promise for you to be filled. Change your diet. And also, if you are feeding on the gospel, can you pray with the gospel? These things, that you see, there are those who confess, you know, the, the practical confession, and some of us may do so here. It has benefits and it also can be done in the wrong way. If you are just confessing things that actually don't matter, God has not promised or whatever, then it's just an exercise in some kind of psychological, I don't know what you want to call it. But if you are looking in God's word and, for instance, taking the gospel and you're actually taking it back to yourself, meditating, praying it, meditating that is also thinking about how is it confronting issues in your life, the Spirit will bring it to your heart. 
Our marriages can't satisfy, they weren't designed to do so. Our money can't satisfy, that's not the purpose of it. Our work and our career cannot satisfy, it's not the place to go. The place to go is to Jesus. And God has put him on the cross so that we will not be thirsty again. And he has also given us his spirit so that we will not thirst in this world. Would you come to him again? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.